call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 101 of Call It Friend or the podcast, where usually two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself and DJ Richie and my co-host Duncan Tiernan watched two World War II films set in the Pacific, 2013's The Railway Man and 1957's The Bridge on the River Kwai. As always, the podcast contains spoilers for the films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. You can find us on Instagram at Call Friend or Podcast. Drop us a line there if any feedback or recommendations, please. And the trains are running on time today, much like... We got trains, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Much like uh, in a fascist country at the beginning. Fascist countries love trains. I'm starting to think maybe I was born in the wrong country. I'm born in a terrible liberal hellhole with rubbish trains that don't run properly. I, as always, am somewhere down a fascist rabbit hole. Um, And uh, (laughs) this week I was like uh, listening to stuff about... um, the fact that Salazar and Franco weren't actual fascists because they, they were like more conservative dictatorships because fascism is like a revolutionary force that they want to tear down old orders. Whereas like your man Salazar in Portugal would have just been like, I would like it to be like pre-reformation. That's literally the kind of thing he would say. And Franco was the same. They had big deals with the church. They didn't like, you know, your kind of people, the stonemasons. They weren't into the stonemasons. You're a stonemason, yeah, Frank, right? Franco was a big church guy conservative christian you went uh you went to uh the place where he cut his teeth didn't you you went to malia yeah yeah there's a there's I'd a statue of there. him yeah, yeah the uh, north african enclave i saw a, a franco statue that's the main reason i would like to go out i would, <laughs> I would <laughs> it would literally look like i was paying tribute to franco i, I would just be beelining for there's a franco statue this is nuts i'm not sure if it's still there that was back in 2011 when you go to the Wikipedia profile uh, page, it's it, that's the that's the profile <laughs> wow, you really picture. Really did do. <laughs> yeah, I'm always. You really up. are in a fascist rabbit hole. Uh, not fascist, conservative dictators, actually. But yeah, the train the trains in fascist in Franco Spain were not good. Well, I'm <laughs> they, just they gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take a shocking position now and say I don't actually like Franco or Salazar uh, or Emperor Hirohito. <laughs> or any of those other boys. I don't like them either. It, like in a. And that Austrian guy, he it, was a bit of an odd duck. Yeah, odd looking duck. Odd looking duck. But I mean, it's a strange position you have to take on them because I'm very interested. So they occupy much of my time, but I don't like them. But I kind of like them. You know what I mean? Like if somebody got me a book all about them, I'd be like, ooh, delightful, which kind of makes me like them. You know, it's, it's a tough, I don't know. It's like, uh, do I disapprove of Roy Keane breaking that guy's leg on purpose? Absolutely. I don't think he should have walked out on the Republic of Ireland at the World Cup. Uh, do I enjoy Roy Keane as an entity? Sure. Do you think Roy Keane could successfully run a fascist regime? Yes. Yes, actually, I do think so. I think he'd be decent at that. Yeah, he would. I think his speeches would be absolutely excellent. <laughs> they certainly would. Which group do you think he would pick on? Because you got to pick a group mm. if you're if you're going to be a dictator. I don't know. Midfielders. Intellectuals. I'd say he'd go uh, after the intellectuals. Just, I don't know. I think he's a, a closet intellectual oh, himself. Just there in your universities. Oh. <laughs> What's that? That's my Roy Keane impression. You didn't like it? I'm sure Roy Keane is also Paul Giamatti. Oh. <laughs> That's true, actually. It's all just in the throat. Much like, you know, anything good in life. And we're live. 
What's happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this was a, a week for the trains. You like trains? I do like I do like trains. Actually, I go as far as to say that I love trains. Have you ever been on one of the famous trains? What do you? What constitutes a famous train? Like in your uh, Thomas the Tank Engine? <laughs> no, like the Trans Siberian Express, one of those. No, I haven't. I was going to do that back in two thousand and seven. I was in Tokyo and I was planning to take the the Trans Siberian Express, but I saw it was like two weeks. Yeah, yeah, it's a long. And you're you're just there. You're there on the train, looking out the window at nothingness, and people are like peeling hard boiled eggs and drinking vodka. I fucking love trains. Like. My my wife is from Madrid. When she goes to Madrid before me, like, you know, maybe she's got an extra day off or something, and then I get to take the train on my own the next day. I honestly, I just wa- look out the window. I, it, I don't like taking trains at night as much, but I'll watch a movie or whatever. But, like, I love just watching loads of landscape pass. I find it incredibly relaxing. I think it's nice that they let you take the train by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Spain is a very forward-thinking country. Yeah, so long as I wear my helmet. Um, yeah. Yes, neither of us, uh, neither of us, I think, like trains as much as old Eric Lomax. Well, he had a, a special relationship with trains and train lines. Yes, indeed, a special relationship, much like that of the United Kingdom and the United States. <laughs> very similar, yeah. When people say that's the, spe- the special relationship... More and more as history progresses, you just realize it's because nobody else likes the British. Yeah, I've realized that. Apparently, uh, the UK, not that popular worldwide. Yeah, but people don't count you guys. It's all right. What about you, though? What, it's the how English. Do you feel like, when, it's all about the how, English. <laughs> how do you feel when you watch World War II stuff? Are you... Is that like being Scottish and like watching the like watching some major football tournament? You know, you're like watching the World Cup and going, "Well, we're we're not playing, so it's, I don't really care who wins." Is that how you feel when you're watching <laughs> any World War Two film? No, because the thing is, is like I actually I really enjoy British history. I actually have mm. um, a lot of. I don't go for the atypical opinion that you're assigned as an Irish person with lots of British people. I have a, like, you know, I think there's a lot of admirable stuff there. The main thing that I dislike about Britain and England in particular is, <laughs> here comes a big sweep, is uh, <laughs> oh. when you get over there, like the ratio of cunt to not cunt is astounding. <laughs> it's it's astounding. And I know, I know <laughs> lots, lots of nice English people, but when you're actually there, you're like, whoa, God damn it, everybody? I know what you're talking about. I certainly have some experience in that regard. Yeah, I, I mean, it's less so in Scotland. And the thing is, like, the only reason it's probably not like that in Ireland is because, you know, like, I mean, here's the thing. The British were most present in Dublin, and the cunt ratio thing applies in Dublin, but not quite mm. in the rest of the country. So it, it must be a kind of a British thing. We, I'm willing to say it. I say it all the time. Fuck it. Like, and, you know, when it comes to things like, I don't know, Maggie Thatcher and stuff like that, I mean, I don't have all the, you know, vitriol in my veins for her. I think she handled the Falklands War quite well, actually. But, uh, yeah, just the, I mean, the cunts she was dealing with, Billy Elliot's dad, people like that, you know. No, no, I'm only joking. Um, I like Billy Elliot and his dad. Uh, <laughs> I, he's a little boy. I'll cry just thinking about that scene. Anyway, but talking about the Brits and the history in World War Two, I mean, that'll bring us to the Railway Man because my main takeaway from the Railway Man was that I was I was looking for exactly what the film was railing against or presenting an alternative worldview from. So basically, the whole reason for telling this story is to present the opposing view of exactly what I want 
when I tune in to see a film about the British at war. Like, leave the PTSD to the Vietnam veterans and Guy Fieri. I'm, I'm talking. No, I know what this was an attempt to do. Basically, what, what this was attempting to do, I think it failed to do, because I don't think anybody involved in the film, excepting maybe the cinematographer, cared about the film or the story at all. Yeah, I would. I think that I, I didn't really know what I was recommending or putting up for the toss. I knew the beats of the story. I had some concepts. It's an of interesting Eric story. Max, who had you know had had helped to build this uh, death railway in Burma and Thailand, but I didn't realize it was essentially like a kind of made-for-TV level production with big names. Yeah, who like you say could not give a fuck. Nicole Kidman clearly is just doing her job, does not care whatsoever. Still in Skarsgård. Yeah, my what's, God. What's, what's he doing? You, you and I have the exact same story? notes. I mean, basically, I like, have you ever, like, okay, so as far as the cast goes, there are three, as you mentioned, heavy hitters in Kidman, Firth, and Skarsgård to carry the definitively mediocre script. But I think Skarsgård just phones it in that little bit too much and kind of gives away the game, particularly with them... There's one scene where he does a double yell. He goes, you punish her! You punish her! And it's like, you're, dude, come on. I, come on. Stop this. Skarsgård. But it made me... Of the three, I think... Okay, I, uh, of those three heavy hitters, it made me, I So, because there's not much to think about what they do in this film, I got to thinking about them. I mean, we can we can cover it now or cover it with cast, but I... Yeah, fuck it. Yeah, let's talk about it now. Okay, so I basically think Skarsgård is a very good character actor. I think I think of the three, Nicole Kidman is probably the best actor slash least hot of Tom Cruise's wives, and that's saying something. But I suddenly realized is I don't think Colin Firth's actually a good actor. I think oh, that's that's controversial. Yeah, I do, I actually don't think he is. I was thinking about it, and it brought me to mind of this poem that I saw on Instagram by this uh, comedian called James McGann, which I'll. I'll now read for you, because I, th- I thought it was very funny, and I actually think he got to the essence of something with it. Hold on. I should have had this ready, because I knew I was going to read it. Right, here we go. Is Kate Blanchett a great actress, or is she just an Australian woman who seems like she knows how to read? A new poem by James Donald Forbes McGann. Are we 100% sure Kate Blanchett is a great actress? I mean, she was great in one scene in Lord of the Rings where she says spooky stuff about being very powerful, uh, but other than that, do you know what I mean? Is she actually seriously very good at acting? Or is she just an unusual Australian woman? Most Australian women are proud to be lowbrow, but Kate Blanchett seems like she might be able to read. But is she a Sheila who seems like she knows how to read really enough to win three Academy Awards? Now, Margot Robbie, who really can act, who is one of the best actresses in the acting game. Say what you will about whether or not she reads, but goodness gracious me, she's a very good actress. And do you know how many Oscars our Margot has won? The answer is zero, as in Margot Robbie has won zero Academy Awards. Meryl Streep is another type of award-winning actress who definitely, obviously knows how to read. She's not an Australian woman, and I reckon that might even take her reading to a whole other level. But can Meryl Streep act? Is she actually good at acting? Because whenever I see Meryl Streep in a film, I think, hey, Meryl Streep, I bet she reads. And I forget to pay attention to the acting that she's doing. (laughs) And yet Meryl Streep has won more Academy Awards than anybody could know what to do with. And every time she goes up and accepts another one, I think, wait, is this an award for seeming like you read books? Because if so, she deserves an award. But if this is supposed to be an award for good acting, I really feel like Margot Robbie should have won. 
Now, Emily Blunt, she might not know how to read. She probably does. I imagine she does. But you can also imagine a world where she doesn't. And she seems like a really smart lady. She seems like a really switched on sort of person. I'll bet she's great on the Graham Norton show. I think I watched her on it once, but I don't entirely remember. And Emily Blunt is a fantastic actress. Emily Blunt stares in a movie and I think, wow. And I absolutely never think that woman reads books. Which, of course, she might. I'm not saying she wouldn't. I think you get the point by now. Uh, he, yeah. he names a whole slew of these. Women and men near the end. Colin Firth is not on the list, but I reckon he should be. It suddenly dawned on me. It's just like, oh, yeah, you can. if you seem like sort of a classy, clever person, they'll put you in a classy, clever, serious role. And because you're that kind of person, you can carry the weight of the serious role. But are you actually doing any acting? Like, look at Daniel Day-Lewis. How are you defining acting, then? Daniel Day- Not being yourself? Have you ever seen Daniel- Yes, I suppose. Or, not, no, not entirely. There's different types of acting, but, like, I- Just range, are we talking about? Yeah, I suppose. I consider Daniel Day, like, um, the best actor ever, maybe. Have you ever seen him interviewed? He's, like, a shell of a human being. Um, yeah. He's very, very intense, and he's good at playing intense people. But then if you go to, like, the first half an hour of In the Name of the Father, where he's just a feck arse, he's just an Egypt, a Northern <laughs> Irish Egypt, and he plays it really, really effectively. Um, I think he's got all the fucking range in the world. To to refer back to the poem, I think somebody like... Uh, I, th- I think Tom Hanks Bowden looks like he reads and can act, for example, but I'm not sure... Mm. Colin Firth can. I don't think Hugh Grant looks like he reads, but I think that well, guy yeah, can act. I think he's a great actor. Are you? And I ju- it dawned on me in this film is like, I can you think of something that you think Colin Firth is good in? Um, what's the one where his part the Tom Ford film? What's that? Oh, called? a single man. A single man. Yeah, I thought he's good in that. I mean, it's really well shot, and he sure looks like he reads. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I, I, I okay. Why, when did when did Colin Firth play against type? He always plays the same character. He I does. Yeah. Say. He He's won the himself. Oscar for uh, the King's Speech, which whatever. Right. Okay. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Kingsman. He's playing the same character again. Conspiracy that I watched not that long ago. I mean, he's a hot piece of ass. He's got real hot daddy energy. I'll admit that. Well, as long as you're willing to admit that. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Uh, I, I just, yeah, this film, I think, really set the sun on him for me. I was like, God damn it, he, this is, he's not good. Like these I don't th- think that's a, I don't think that's a Colin Firth problem. I think it's like, like I said, it's like, it's, it's, it's a TV production level uh, film. I feel like, like I, I think, I feel like they only took, I feel like they only did like about two takes in most scenes. I think they put all of their time and energy into the Second World War stuff. Which and is all actually the modern decent. day things, modern day ish things that bookend the film are are just they just they they lack any real weight except for the scenes where he meets up with. Um, oh, see, I hated that Nagase, Hiroyuki Sanada. You don't like that? Uh, I like actually. I was annoyed because the movie almost made me cry at the end, where uh, he says to Nicole Kidman, "If you had been here, you would have caused quite a stir." But I mean, is that what made you cry? The idea of. Uh, yeah, a bunch a, of POWs hornily groping <laughs> Nicole Kidman with her clean dress. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's enough to make anyone cry. <laughs> no, um, I suppose, like, Nicole Kidman and Stellan Starsgaard have the impression of phoning it in. They've got better places to be. Colin Firth seems like he's, you know, he's he's doing his thing. I, sp- I don't know, I think that's unfair. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I so I didn't, like, 
yeah, I mean, like you said, it's well shot and it moves along nicely. The flashbacks to the war I like particularly because everyone is young and skinny, which is much more in line with how it should have been than the guys you typically see in films like this, such as the other film we watched this week, which I enjoyed way more, which is not really saying much because uh, it's vastly superior. I, I'm i going to run through the story quickly because it'll take five seconds, basically. Fire away. So Eric Lomax likes trains, and he was in the uh, Second World War. He goes to a, like a veterans group uh, with a made-up guy uh, who didn't actually kill himself. <laughs> <laughs> You're making it sound like he's got some kind of invisible friend or something. No, 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 no. Okay, fair enough. Stellan Skarsgård is a, a composite character who didn't really exist of various veterans. And then he marries a lady who's 17 years uh, his junior, which they don't get into in the film, but it's what happened in real life. Uh, he um, left his wife of many of years since the war for her in real life, but apparently it wasn't a very happy marriage. But he did. then also the, his children, he has three children, didn't feature in the movie because he didn't talk to them for years. Or rather, they didn't talk to him for years. You pick one. But apparently... Hey, the guy was a war hero. Apparently that was all to do with his PTSD. Anyway... Yeah. His PTSD got so bad, um, it, it gets a beautiful mind very quickly. She didn't notice that before they got married, for example. In the hotel, when they get married, he starts he starts a beautiful minding on her. I mean, yeah, whatever. That's, things, that's not great. Uh, but he's then we get flashbacks back to the war. We see they had to build this uh, murderous railway, you know, slave labor, basically, um, through the jungle in Burma. And he makes a radio this part actually did happen the map thing did not happen but he builds a radio and gets tortured by um this fella called nagasi who's part of the secret police and when britain win the war one actually fascinating detail i suppose about the pow camp stuff is they're listening for news of the war because of course they would have no idea what was happening with it which i thought was quite interesting that they would pick up things like that and also the fact that all countries were broadcasting radio in all the enemy countries at all times during mm. the war. I love that detail when it, like you can always find British music or you know or whatever Japanese music sounds like back then. Anyway, yeah, you know like I mean the Run Silent Run Deep um is this uh, film where like it's a submarine movie and the Japanese broadcast these like uh, these things on onto the American frequencies basically saying, "Hey America, you're going to lose. You stink. You suck, America." It's funny. Anyway, this guy tortures him, but he gets away with it. He doesn't get tried for war crimes or anything like that. And Colin Firth is just back being mean to Nicole Kidman, who's his 17 years, his wife, his junior wife. Um, and she's like, oh, my God. And she d- says a mad thing to him, by the way. A mad thing. He <laughs> says, Which one's that? <laughs> so basically, yeah, his fictional mate kills himself, which is a very cheap, dramatic ploy. He's, he yeah. hangs himself off a bridge. It's like, Jesus, guys, come In on. a terrible sort of like... Uh, it, it kind of it just cuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he do, and the thing is, they it cuts really quickly to just this kind of snapping sound mm. of, uh, and then uh, him hanging from a bridge. Shot terribly, awful move yes. in the script. I'll tell you my theories on the script afterwards. Um, and then Nicole Kidman says, "Oh yeah, first of all, this is the the dialogue exchange. This is the sort of stuff that should have ended their marriage." He says to her, "He killed himself. I hope you're happy now." <laughs> 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 I think that's a great move. I think you need to. I think you need to bring that wow. out as often, as um, often as possible. I hope you're happy now. And then the other one is he. Sa- he basically takes out a knife and says, "Because your man has shown him in the newspaper that the guy who tortured him is now giving tours of the place where the railway was built, and he shows Nicole Kidman a knife and says, "I'm going to go off there and kill that lad." And she says, "Anything you do is fine." 
It's a- None of this makes any sense because, like, he met Patty. Eric Lomax met his wife Patty in 1980. Yeah, that's right. And then he didn't. Uh, he didn't go over to meet Nagase until like 1995. Yeah. So it's like none of the timeline makes sense because he would have been. He was so old by that point. By the time they ever met up. That's sort of what I mean, and I will get to it once I finish off with the synopsis. That's sort of what I mean when I think say nobody was actually that interested. I think the guy who wrote the script yeah. originally and sold it might have been interested. A guy called um, Frank Boyce, because uh, he mainly because he's made some interesting films with um, Michael Winterbottom. Yeah, he's a, yeah, yeah. Um, but. Anyway, she says, anything you do is fine. Basically, a Team America type promise. Pretty nuts. Um, <laughs> I promise I'll never die. I promise I'll never die. Um, and he buggers off. Then he ties up the guy who's clearly giving tours out as an act of contrition, which is real. He built a, a Buddhist temple, a temple. And your man ties him up and he's like, uh, this part just irked me so much because the story, the real life story, they corresponded, and he went over yeah. there out of contrition, which is a really interesting thing that happened. Mm-hmm. The vengeance thing to to hike the drama just irked me so much because it's just it's it's as I said, they did not care about this story, and he ties him up, and he's like, your man is like, uh, yeah, um, I'm sorry for you know uh, the, you know the people who died, people who were murdered. Do you mean murdered? Are you trying to say murder? It's like Jesus Christ. He locks him up in this cage, and then all of a sudden he has a change of heart. And then they hug. And then he goes back and visits him again with his wife and they hug again. And there is a postscript that says, and this annoyed me the most because it's just clearly not true, says that they were great friends until the end of their lives. That, I mean, that's just, there's no way that that was true. You know what I mean? They might have reconciled, but there's no way they were calling each other up and shit. I mean, come on. How do you define great friends? You're talking about guys who are like in their 80s. I think the fact they even know someone means great friend. Uh, The fact that you know all his other friends and people he knows, like people he knew all died off. Yeah. I mean, I, I I don't think it's unfair to say that that's a great friend. It's like... It's one of the few people still alive on the planet who he has shared <laughs> memories with. I, I'm sorry, but that's what happens when you reach your 80s. You don't have Everyone great friends you've ever anymore. known is dead. Yeah, I suppose. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's the guy who picks, who takes my bins. We're great friends. Yeah, he's like, listen, listen, this guy tortured me for a period of time. Like, he knows me. At least he knows me. <laughs> At least we have a shared existence. Any- I think that's the reality of age, unfortunately. Maybe, maybe. Um, okay, so to cut to the real story and what actually happened with old, uh, old Eric Lomax. So, yeah, he was tortured. He so couldn't get over the war that he went and built railways in Africa for 10 years. Now, he met his wife immediately after the war, and she did not come to Africa. She just goes to show you what kind of marriage they, they had. And she wouldn't even go to Africa for him. Ugh. Well, he wouldn't take her, by all accounts. Like, by all accounts, their marriage was really rocky. He was at war with their with her family. Her side of things was basically, yeah, he was just absent the whole time and she never really forgave him for it because he took a lot of years of her life, which sounds fair enough to me. And then when he met uh, Agnes or Patty, uh, the Nicole Kidman character in 1980, as I say, she was 17 years his junior. Nice. Cash back. Yeah. And um, then he was having an affair with her for the bones of a year and then he left his family and his children never spoke to him again until after his first wife died. He was at the funeral and he reconnected with his daughter slightly, but she said he was still very much racked by um, PTSD. He did see 
um, Tamasi, Tagasi? Um, Nag- Nagase? Nagase. He did see Nagase in a newspaper. Uh, originally, it was handed to him. The As I said, the Stellan Skarsgård character who kills himself is not a real character. They gave him a real guy's name, um, but he's a composite character. And he was actually handed the newspaper by uh, somebody else, not a veteran. And he corresponded with um, Nagase first a couple of times. Uh, Nagase had written a book and built a Buddhist temple as an act of contrition. And literally, like... So, basically, what I'm leading up to is, as with all of these things, not with all of these things, not with if you get a screenwriter who actually cares, the truth is really interesting. That's a, to me, that's a much more interesting story, the fact that he went over there having corresponded and just trying to, you know, put the pieces together. Now, to be fair, it's probably more like a film like Silence, Martin Scorsese's film, shorter probably, but still, that kind of thing isn't for everybody, but it's the more interesting story. What I did not like... What really bugged me is the injection of the suicide and the vengeance idea into the plot because I felt it was sort of disrespectful. Now, Eric Lomax was fine with it, (laughs) so, I mean, (laughs) whatever. Um, He was just happy. He was like, look at all these people together. Yeah, yeah. This is nice. (laughs) This is nice. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's my bin man. (laughs) I've already had a dig at the script by Andy Patterson, who normally didn't write. He's a producer, and uh, Frank Boyce, and I'll double down on that and the relatively uninvolved direction of uh, Jonathan Teplitsky. Uh, Frank Boyce appears to be the only one who might have known better, as he got, I mentioned, a relatively impressive career writing uh, children's fiction and Michael Winterbottom films, uh, among them the excellent 24-hour party people and a cock and bull story. I love those two movies. I feel Andy Patterson basically polished up a script Boyce wrote, uh, and I'm willing to bet the whole revenge section at the end was uh, his input given its shit. Uh, Patterson is mostly a producer, and Jonathan uh, Teplitsky looks as though he does... He's a TV guy. Yeah, he does the job he's hired for, basically. Um, All I know that I have seen one of his other films, his film Churchill, sucks loads of balls and uh, take similar liberties as this film does. Anyway. Who is it who plays Churchill in that? Is it... Brian uh, Cox. Brian Cox. Yeah, yeah. Not a good movie. Anyway, the main problem here is... And actually, do you know what? Gary Oldman was on to play that, and he said, no, this sucks, and then did Churchill... Uh, he did the other yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, exactly, which is a much superior film. I quite like the other one. Anyway, the main problem here is, as I mentioned, no one seemed to care. The actors don't care because the script is scripting by numbers and the director isn't interested, it would seem to me. He knows well enough where to point the camera, but what seems like the theme for this one, an alternate view on the stiff upper lip British Army thing, um, is sort of missed completely. Like, Stellan Skarsgård gives it a go with one line where he's like, uh, Nicole Kidman's like, he needs to talk about this sort of thing. And Stellan Skarsgård's like, no, he doesn't. And then she goes, no, he does. And then they become friends and decide that he does need to talk about this sort of stuff, which leads to the scene, you punish her. You punish her. (laughs) That's very good Skarsgård. Thank you. But I mean, he's doing an impression of Stellan Skarsgård in this film. Um, (laughs) Yeah. uh, But you know what? I mean, it ticked along nicely. I didn't. It didn't bother me that I was watching it so much. It was just it. Yeah, it annoyed me that it's view on history. It annoyed me that because the only reason this got made. Have you ever seen the episode of Father Ted uh, where they're talking about the up, yes. updating of the relic, <laughs> the 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 Holy Stone of Clonrickard, right? The, to a class two relic, and uh, Ted goes. All sorts of considerations go into this, Dougal. There's committees, you know what I mean? And then it cuts to the Vatican. There's two boys. One of them goes, what about the Holy Stone of Clan Record? Whatever. 
it seems like this was made with that kind of energy. It's like, should we make this fucking thing with Eric? I think I think the reason it was made was because the most famous film on the on this subject and this area of the war didn't show the reality of how people were tortured. Yeah. So I and I think that probably pissed uh, Eric Lomax off in 1957. He was like, he "This is film, that, The yeah. Bridge on the River Kwai." massively popular great film but like it looks like a holiday camp they're having a great time yeah that is one of the things fucking waterboarded uh he did like yeah there's interviews he gave where he mentioned that particularly about william holden's physique yeah even uh, just having william holden there i mean we'll get to that in uh, bridge on the river Kwai, but just like airdropping this this actor into the film i mean he's great but it's like He's in the film because they're like, you know, we need someone for the U.S. audiences. Let's have this character here, which makes no sense whatsoever. I think there is something to the to the William Holden character being in it. I think there is, like, because I think there's, I think that film's about empire. It's not actually about World War II. That's fine, but I mean, it's like, it's entirely fictional. Totally, yeah, it's almost yeah. entirely fictional. So, I mean, I could see why Eric Lomax would be like, fuck this. Are we done with? I don't know. If, is there any? Is there anything? Is there anything to be said for the Realme man? Um, anything whatsoever? Uh, wait, wait, I thought uh, the the young Eric Lomax. Oh yeah, Jeremy no, Urban, he's fine. We should, well, plus he, he can read, he can act. Yeah, I suppose. Um, and not, and he he went full in. Uh, he he went all in from what I heard. He was like he there was no stunt double. He let himself get tortured. He went method. He lost weight. Do you think maybe like Stellan Skarsgård might have touched him on the shoulder and said, "This isn't the film for that. You you don't need to do that." Um, I would. We're, I would we're say all those, phoning it in. I would say those two probably never met. Yeah, no, 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 for sure they didn't. Um, yeah, Jeremy uh, Eric Lomax's uh, daughter said that uh, Jeremy Irvine basically reminded her of her dad, which uh, mm. fair enough. I think though, like th- those sections of the film are comfortably the best. Um, mm-hmm. I think they're I think they're actually pretty decent with what they do. Um, I think the Japanese officers are actually quite scary in it, in, yeah. in, um, which is something because it might be a type of Orientalism, racism, or something like that. But I don't think they're ever given the ferocity that they they ought to have. Like I, just from me deep diving on history, like man, the Japanese were scary, like really, really scary people. As scary as the Nazis, we're talking the stuff that they got up to during the war is terrifying. Only maybe like the likes of City of Life and Death, I suppose, would come close to uh, depicting, or actually Empire of the Sun. They're pretty scary in Empire of the Sun, I found. Have you watched City of Life and Death? No, I've only seen like trailers and clips and shit. I do, because yeah, because I know it was up. It was up for that toss Mm. before, but yeah, yeah. We need to stay away from all these. We're we're going heavy in the uh, other directions. World world. No, I'm just saying we've done a lot of World War Two, <laughs> uh, Asian theater. I mean Pacific theater. But I mean, it's fascinating stuff. <laughs> what what can I say? True. Can't get away from that. Of the cast, uh, Irvine has diabetes. Did you know that? <laughs> no, but that's that's certainly notable. Yeah, yeah. He's in uh, War Horse. Um, that's right that was his big that's his big break i haven't seen it uh yeah he's uh he, i like war i don't mind horses i quite like that uh, movie it's not really remembered very fondly but i i remember i quite liked it uh when um it didn't came it out. win best picture or something i don't think so no no i can't have done but no, it was no. i feel like it i mean it, it it won a ton of it won oscars right war horse 
No, it was just nom- it was nominated for Best Picture. It got one, two, three, four, five, six uh, Oscar nominations. I mean, I did think it was a really, really good film. I and I don't think it's. I, I've watched it once since, and I still think it holds up really well. I suppose it's just like, you know, oh whatever. Steven Spielberg's produced another good movie. Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's that kind of attitude. But still, I, I I quite like that one. Do you know what's one that suffers from that and is fucking excellent? Is War of the Worlds. Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds is fantastic. My underrated Spielberg film is probably Amistad. Amistad is very good. I have not seen it in many years, but it is very good. I feel like it gets sort of, it's just like brushed away there, but... People forget about it, yeah. Yeah. Anthony Hopkins. You think, so you think, War, you think War of the Worlds is... Uh, I think it's excellent. Quality. I thought you were going to say Munich there, and I was like, no, people rate Munich yeah. pretty highly, don't they? Munich's fine. But War of the Worlds, I remember some of the criticism of it being the sun going away and then turning up and he hasn't died yeah uh, that's a very weird move in the ending i have to say but the scene in the basement where the weird alien eye is looking around is mm-hmm. as tense as the velociraptors in jurassic park and the way the we- the alien weapon just affects humans they're just vaporized mm-hmm. is like i just think it's really really effective the fact that tom cruise is like a bad father i uh, is is nice too <laughs> creepy old tim robbins creepy old timothy robbins yeah 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 I think Cahiers du Cinema uh, rated it highly, but I mean, what the fuck did they know? They said uh, Twin Peaks The Return was the best film of whatever year it came out. Anyway. What, Twin, Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me? Uh, yeah. No, 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 no. I enjoy that. No, no, no. Are you talking about the TV series? Yes, ex- exactly. Which is a douchey move from a cinema magazine, isn't it? They said it was the best film. Yes, they gave it the number one spot, <laughs> Twin Peaks The Return. It's just because David Lynch did it. It's like, come on, you fucking douches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a very, very long film. We can talk the cast for a few seconds. Yeah, do you have anything exciting apart? Has anyone else got any medical conditions? Any other diabetics among the cast? Uh, no. Um, Nicole Kidman was married to Tom Cruise famously, and they shot Eyes Wide Shut together, which is uh, very good. Um, I do actually think she is... Um, I do think she's an excellent actress. I think she's generally really, really good. And uh, I like, particularly in recent years, I think her projects have been have stayed sort of interesting. Also, she is freaking ageless, the woman. I mean, she's 55. I, she looks incredible. You know, That's what I have to say about her, really. She's not got much interesting biographical inf- information about her, apart from the fact that, uh, I mean, she'll get the lads out if anybody asks, which, fair is play. Is anyone still asking? I mean, she got the lads out in Big Little Lies. When was that? I was living in La Sagrera. Uh, so uh, 2017 maybe wow yeah yeah so So like 50 years old yeah 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 and she had the lads out and she was looking well and she was actually married she was actually married to the son of another cast member have you seen Big Little Lies no it's good is that got Alexander Skarsgård in it it does yeah he's the abusive husband Um, so yeah Stellan Skarsgård Swedish actor uh, known very well for his um, collabs with the famous Nazi Lars von Trier Um, (laughs) and Where? Is he a Nazi now? No, he just said those things at the Cannes Film Festival that he he oh, felt yeah. sympathy for Hitler in his bunker. Which, to be fair, is like, do you like many Lars von Trier movies? Uh, I'm a big fan of Dogville. Yes, Dogville is excellent. And Skarsgård's in that. Yeah. Yeah, Dogville is very good. I I oddly liked, um, I liked Breaking the Waves and the Idiots. Um, mm. but I haven't seen those. I think, I don't know, like, have you ever seen Antichrist? 
No, I watched a bit of it and uh, I didn't need to see clip mutilation, etc. No, you definitely didn't. <laughs> I went on a date to that movie with a girl <laughs> in Belgium. True story. That's probably fine there. First and last date. Uh, anyway, yeah, he's a humanist. Um, and after the, um, after the 9-11 attacks, he set out to read both the Bible and the Koran. Uh, and he said they're both shit. <laughs> Did he really? He said that they both are like uh, books that encourage violence. The world's most Swedish man. Impressive. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, yeah. It's, fu- <laughs> it's funny that like, I don't know, actors sort of get into politics. I've got something to say about old Firthy Balls when we get to him, um, which is now, I believe. Uh, yeah, so Colin Firth, he's, I think it's fair to say he's national treasure territory in, in England, isn't he? Everybody just loves him all the time. Wouldn't you say that's the case? Yeah, I'd say so. He's got like a... I mean, he's constantly playing the same role, but he's definitely respected. He's the the good one from Bridget Jones's diary, which basically means, you know, uh, you know, that's it. That's the decision of the British consciousness. I I feel is he the sort of nerdy type one? Yeah, uh, but she. So he go. She goes for Hugh Grant first of all, the better actor. But in the end, uh, he's cheating on her, and then she goes for Colin Firth. Mm. Just to put a pause on it, because they because of that film. They're inexorably linked and compared. Like, Hugh Grant is comfortably the better person to watch, isn't he? I've never really thought about it before. I guess I think of them as quite similar. Hugh Grant, I'd say, is funnier. I mean, in recent years particularly, like uh, Paddington 2. Like, Mm. Hugh Grant in Paddington 2 is just a fucking tour de force. He's excellent. But he's also, I mean... Like, I remember, I found Hugh Grant interesting as far back as About a Boy, because he's kind of a dick in About Mm. a Boy. And I thought, ah, wow, this guy's kind of got range. Plus, he doesn't look like he reads even a little bit. He, (laughs) I like that now reading has become the metric. It it is, it is indeed, yeah, yeah, isn't it? Uh, He brought Liz Hurley to some award ceremony in a a dress that was put together by uh, Safety Pins, where she looks smoking. And he cheated on Liz Hurley with a with a with a prostitute in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. He's an interesting man. No time for reading. A trans prostitute as well, no? I didn't know that. I thought that was, was Eddie she just Murphy. a prostitute. I guess maybe I'm confusing it. The lady's name was Divine Brown. I remember. Was she? That sounds like a pro- like a transvestite prostitute name. Was she trans? No, no. Sorry. Uh, my <laughs> huge apologies to uh, Estella Marie Thompson, commonly known as Divine Brown. Not a trans, but I mean... She's 53 years old. I wonder, like, did she make enough to retire on that, or is she still a prostitute? No, I I think, yeah, I think she did okay out of it. Uh, Anyway, when it comes to old Firthy Balls, in an interview following the release of uh, the film for which he won his Oscar, I think it's his only Oscar, uh, for the King's Speech, when he would stutter, we should have got an actual stutterer on to uh, uh, compare notes on that. But anyway... In the interview, uh, around the time he was giving interviews, and he said that uh, even though he just played a monarch, he does not like uh, un- unelected institutions. So, like, he's against the constitutional monarchy. And it made me think, like, somebody who's real dug into Hollywood circles has no right making a statement like that. Because what are the Hollywood elite, if not the fucking American royal family, basically? Colin Firth, CBE, also. Oh, is he a... Yeah, he's a CBE. Yeah. Ah, right. Well, yeah. Fuck he off, got then. In 20, he got in 2011. Why am I suddenly hating on old Firthy Balls? He's good friends with Stanley, Stanley Tucci, uh, which um, I like. Uh, I like that they're friends. But yeah, uh, it just kind of... I just... I suppose the main thing that it dawned on me on this was just like, I don't think he's really a good actor anyway. 
I don't know. I don't. I don't feel this uh, this level of vitriol for Colin Firth. I think he's fine. He lived in. He lives in Italy. Does he live in Italy? I respect that. Yeah, he speaks fluent Italian. Respect that too. I saw him making a big speech. He was, uh, you know, I think he's. I think he speaks it very well. I think he's like. He's you saw him making fluent. a big speech in Italian. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, on YouTube. All oh, right. Mean, I wasn't there or anything. He's all. He's also a big uh, anti-Brexit guy. Unsurprisingly, you surprised me. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. Uh, and uh, that's all I have to say about that. Uh, I have another laptop next to me, uh, off which I'm reading occasionally, and I keep trying to move the mouse onto it like it's the, the screen, Oops. but it's not working because it's a different computer. That's an interesting story. It's not as interesting as a multiple Oscar-winning uh, masterpiece, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Huh? No, sir, it is not. Now, I fucking loved this. You go. How many times have you seen it? This is the second time I've ever seen it. I've only Same. ever seen it uh, twice, and I loved it when I watched it years ago. I watched it in uh, mm-hmm. university around the time I was trying to round up and watch, you know, every famous yeah, movie same. ever, and I thought it was great then, and I enjoyed it probably more this time, actually, if anything, because, like, back then I would have been probably a uh, fucking yeah, stiff upper lip British, but these days I actually quite, <laughs> quite enjoy that as a, as a, view, as a point of view. I, I like it. That's true. We're we're all born Irish, uh, Irish Republicans, and then eventually we just become part of the British Empire as we age into it. But like even back then, outside a theme, like it's just whenever you're watching like large scale old movies where they make huge sets and shoot on actual ju- rivers in the jungle and stuff, you just get this feeling like ah. Oh. They're never doing stuff like this again, but it's just visually spectacular. I watched a really nice 4K Blu-ray copy of this. Nice. And yeah, it looked and sounded amazing. So I was very happy that I managed to get hold. Because I think originally I must have watched it on VHS. Yeah. And it was, it was a far superior viewing this time around. I would have watched it on DVD, but still, uh, my copy was, um, was a 4K uh, copy also. We could have uh, gotten the same copy, <laughs> I think. It's possible. Um, yeah, it was I, well, we did We did hand it to each other. Yes, it was quite it a big, heavy Blu-ray, if I might say so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, same. And How I, are you on David Lean? I feel like you're a big David Lean fan. I know you like Lawrence of Alabia. <laughs> I do like Lawrence of Alabia. Um, I like everything I've seen of David Lean, except, and I should go back and watch this again, but I remember thinking Brief Encounter was a big load of shit. I don't think I've seen that. Is that 1930s or 40s? 40s, maybe. It's the it's a, like it's a 90 minuter. Um, so it's before right. he started uh, making big big wowsies like this one. 1945. But uh, I, I, it's just I thought it might have just been because I I just reject that whole notion of because it's about two married people that in right. basically. Edwardian society can't bring themselves to have it off with one another, so to speak. So they, so do, they want to bang on a train. So, they, but they don't bang on a train. They don't. I don't think they bang at all, if I remember correctly. And uh, I, I thought maybe uh, it's just a boring way to tell a story. But then I saw Martin Scorsese's film Age of Innocence, which is a similar kind of bent, and I think that's an excellent film. So I don't know. Maybe I should watch Brief Encounter again because people often say it's the greatest British film ever made. I don't think so. But I've seen Dr. Shivago many years ago, probably do a rewatch, and I love that. And I do want to watch the film that kind of killed his career. Ryan's Daughter? Ryan's Daughter, yeah. Ryan's Daughter, which, like, you know, he he was basically on top of the world um, at that point. Um, so he made this big, long um, uh, epic in Ireland, in the west of Ireland. They built a village for it, which they later demolished. 
I and Irish the Irish tourist board uh, on the west coast still gripe about that because they were like, "What the hell? People would have visited this forever." Yeah, but, I would have. But yeah, it killed his career. There's this famous story where um, he was so upset about the reviews for it that he organized a conference in New York City where he would talk to loads of film critics, and he's like, uh, "How the hell are you going to say such things about me?" And then they said stuff like, "How the hell did the guy who made fucking Lawrence of Arabia make this piece of shit?" And apparently, it mentally scared him, and um, it, that's why he's he like. He almost made the bounty, the film we watched for this podcast. Mm. He almost made that, but he like he started to veer over budget with uh, building exact replicas and stuff. Basically, in the nineteen eighties, people weren't doing things like he was used to doing them anymore. He had a very sort of a Frank Sinatra type experience when he, which I'll explain that reference in a second, uh, when he tried to get back into filmmaking. It's Frank Sinatra near the end of his career. He got really annoyed that he couldn't record in studio with a full orchestra. So he just so like in so his last few years were spent like uh, paying full orchestras to record in a studio he built himself. So he ran through a lot of his money trying to do things his way. But then eventually, much like Akira Kurosawa with Ran, people started to feel sorry for old David Lean, and they gave him a whop ton of money to make a passage to India, which did very very well and won a bunch of Oscars. And yay, all this forgiven for Ryan's daughter. But I kind of I. I think the like the modern day equivalent of somebody like David Lean is probably James Cameron. Surprise, surprise. Um, mm. I because I just think back in the day where he was doing it, he took he took cinema to levels that nobody else was doing. Just, like you should like to see Lawrence of Arabia even today on a big screen is it's mind blowing. Have you have you seen it? I saw it on Phen- in Phenomena. In twice. Phenomena, yeah. Um, and I would see it at, like. I'd yeah, I'd immediately cancel plans with my wife if it was on again tomorrow. Like it's to see it on the big Isn't screen. Isn't it like four hours long? It's nearly four hours long. Um, there's an intermission, and it's but it, like the battle scenes and everything are incredible. But a lot of it is just the luxurious sort of long takes in the desert, which just from far away, two guys on a horse, or even one guy on a horse, like, and it's just these landscapes, and you actually get a taste of that in the River Kwai. Uh, a lot as well. I particularly felt in the scenes where they're going down the river, William Holden and the guys, and you're like, Jesus, mm-hmm. that's a real fucking river. Like, Werner Herzog would be proud of those shots, you know? Yeah, they went to Ceylon. Where's that? Uh, Sri Lanka. So they shot this in the Orient, so to speak. Yeah, it's not that far. Just over the other side of the Bay of Bengal. But this was, uh, I mean, this was when Sri Lanka was part of the British Empire and was called Ceylon. Nice. I did not know that. Yeah, that's why there's a scene uh, where Shears has is in the hospital at the staging area, and he's in. It's like the hospital of Salon. So they're like, <laughs> they were just able to use the building on the island they were on. They didn't need to. They didn't need to uh, dress anything up for that. It's funny, like uh, William Holden just getting ladies the whole way through. Well, that was a that scene was added. I don't know if it was Sam Spiegel who insisted on that scene being added, or no, I think that was studio notes. But uh, I think uh, Lean wasn't a fan of that scene. He didn't want that in. Which the nurse? Yeah, he didn't want that nurse scene in the in the film. That does feel like a studio note. Now you mention it, they were they panicked because they were like, there are no white women in this film. Good God! There's only Thais. Yes, the Thai lady is very pretty. Also, this was his first kind of. This was his first picture with Sam Spiegel, wasn't it? Yeah, they went on to make Lawrence of Arabia. That's right. And yeah. And Dr. Zhivago as well. Yeah. Spiegel's controversial because he was a, a big Harvey Weinstein type. Yes. But he was an and insanely powerful man back in the day. He tried on with a 16-year-old Teresa Russell from uh, Razor's Edge. Huh. 
Yeah, when she was making uh, Ilya Kazan's The Last Tycoon in 1976. I've been meaning to watch The Last Tycoon. She was tycoon. propositioned. Apparently it's not great, but it's got Robert De Niro, Tony Curtis, Robert Mitchum, Jack Nicholson, Donald Pleasant. It's a ridiculous cast. Yeah, all the boys came out to uh, play with Ilya Kazan one last time. Yeah, it's his last film. He was completely destitute at the time that was being made as well. He was mm. broke as hell. Uh, his... His biography, his I think it's an autobiography actually, my story or something like that is one of the one of the best film books I've ever read, maybe the best. Solid. So 1957's Bridge on the River Kwai. It's based on the novel by Pierre Boulle, yeah. entirely fictional. His other most famous work, Planet of the Apes. That's right. Yeah, I saw that. That's those are two heavy hitters. You can retire on that, like. And basically, he spoke no English, so this book was written entirely in French. It's based on his ex- his, his experiences in World War II. He served in Indochina. He was a secret agent who was captured by the, the Vichy France loyalists and sentenced to hard labor. Wow. The screenplay was written by Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson, uh, although in secret because they'd both been blacklisted That's as right, communists, yeah. as dirty communists. Damn dirty commies. Foreman had previously written High Noon in 1952, and Wilson uh, was a co-screenwriter on Planet of the Apes later on. Did you know that, you know the the Western film Rio Bravo? Brave River, I call it. (laughs) Right, Brave River. That was written as a reaction to, uh, written and directed as a reaction to High Noon, because Howard Hughes thought it was, and John Wayne, they both thought it was a bunch of damn dirty commie garbage. They hated it. They were like, what the hell, the sheriff of the town is going to go around asking everybody for help? I think everyone should make films in in reaction to other films. Yes. What would you? It should all just be like it should be like a call and response of making films. That's what the whole thing. That's the whole Hollywood industry should be. Ooh, let's quick uh, think of films that could be responses to other films. Back to the Future. Uh, response: Schindler's List. Nice. There's nothing really you can't answer with Schindler's List, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's my it's my go to for everything. The film won seven Academy Awards. That's you right. Know what it beat to Best Picture? 1957. Uh, I do not off the top of my head. 12 Angry Men. Wow, that's... Kind, that's it's a hard one. It's a tough it's That a tough is tough. Call. I mean, it's kind of fair just because, oh, like, Bridge of the River Kwai is so spectacular, but, mm-hmm. like, 12 Angry Men, yeah, I'd, I'd watch again like, right now, like, it's yeah, so yeah, good. Yeah, It's a very different style of filmmaking. <laughs> They're kind of polar opposites. Yeah, they all like. But it's th- mad to think that they were made in the same year, though. They're, and they're both such craft heavy film, but I suppose, it, like, yeah, L- Lumet's style and, it, like, you know, it, it, that's a, an actor's film, whereas Kwai is very much a director's film, I would say. And David Lean beat out Sidney Lumet for, big, for best director. Did Sidney Lumet ever win an, a directing Oscar? Because he's got some classics under his belt, like. No, only nominations. He was nominated for 12 Angry Men, Dog oh, Day Afternoon, Network, and The Verdict. Uh, oh, I, would have, I would have guessed all of those, so yeah, it's boring anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. God, he's got he's, some fucking classics that uh, that man did. Sure, what are you going to do? But it, like David Lean is much more, I don't know, involved in his films, you could say. Seshu Hayakawa, who played Saito, lost to <laughs> friend of the show Red Buttons for the film Sayonara. Okay, we'll leave that to one side. Oh, Red Buttons is the closeted gay yeah, guy from uh, Poseidon Adventure, right? Yeah, the guy who, when he was younger, he used to, I think he was like a lift operator. Remember he had yeah, a whole yeah, thing yeah. where some guy came into a lift and said like, you got it, kid. Yeah, yeah, totally. I know, I you do remember. you be a star. 
Um, he, he was, uh, I think he was a stand-up comic and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's where he got his name, and he would have red buttons on his jacket. Saito was nominated for an Oscar? Yeah, Seshu Hayakawa, legend. Legend. Okay, tell me more. Well, I'll tell, I'll tell you about that in cast, okay. but like, yeah, I mean, he was nominated. He got nominated for, for an Oscar. He was good. That's fair enough. He was good. It was 1957. Was, I, think, I think he deserved that nomination for his years and years of hard work, but we'll get to that when we talk about the cast. Pierre Boulle, uh, he ended up with the sole screenplay credit, even though he doesn't speak English, just because uh, Foreman and Wilson were both on the blacklist. Mm. And it took until the 1980s for that credit to be restored, that Oscar to be restored to those two. It, like, you know, when you're getting your thing restored, do you think anybody, like, people were kind of going, oh my God, that's so, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's, yeah, so that's so embarrassing that you guys were communists. Like, because <laughs> it is pretty lame to be in Hollywood and be a communist. Like, what are you talking about? I don't believe that they were communists. So, I mean, they served in the Second World War. I just, I don't believe that they were communists. I mean, there were. I, like, I think, yeah, I'm sure there were, obviously there were some communists, but I think at a certain point, you know, there was like a, a witch-finding process. Uh, witch-hunting, I believe, is the, the turn of phrase. Witch-finding. <laughs> Dumbass. I was, thinking, I was thinking of, like, the witch-finder general. I know you what. are, yeah, 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 but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. The, I mean, okay, I'll leave me being a dumbass. <laughs> did you ever hear, like, a, a, basically, when they were doing all those witch hunts, Humphrey Bogart and the boys um, all, like, got together and they were like, we're not going to take all this witch hunting. And they did a march down to where they were doing some of the hearings. And old Trumbo was inside there waxing lyrical. And he actually was a card-carrying commie. And he was being all smarmy. And Humphrey Bogart then did a complete reverse furt on the situation because he was like, what? This guy's actually a damn dirty commie. Fuck this cunt. And um, yeah, then he was like, yeah, more hearings, no, less commies in Hollywood. The character of Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson is based on the real Lieutenant Colonel Philip Tuzzi, which was very controversial because Tuzzi did not collaborate with the Japanese. So Pierre Bull's novel is based on this real English soldier, mm. but his actions are based on the, the Vichy French who captured Bull. So it was accused of <laughs> those accusations of anti-British sentiment because he took the actions of, of French people and then, <laughs> and then just transposed it onto British soldiers in World War II. That is pretty funny. That, I would imagine that would, really, yeah. that would really rake on a British soldier <laughs> being made to do French things. Maybe all, yeah. the, all the things I'm reading into it then are just completely in my head. Hi, what were you? What were you reading into the Empire thing? My thoughts were, and there's, there must be some energy uh, of this in the film because this was was made around the time that the British Empire was kind of disintegrating. Um, yeah. Lots of independence in Africa, in India was already gone, um, so it was kind of you know they were on their their sort of last legs, and I think like there's an air of the fact that even like in the wrong shitty weird situation all they kind of, they had an eye towards something constructive. You know what I mean? And then when eventually people came in to destroy it, it was it was a blow in a different way. Because like, I've heard the arguments on both sides about, you know, colonialism and things like that. And I, you know what I mean? It's, the thing is, what I, what I felt about it, and the reason I felt it was ultimately about empire, is I think it is, a far more complicated idea and a far more complicated piece of history than people ever give it credit for because it's much easier to just go, they invaded and... You know what I mean? Like, 
it's it's a very very difficult thing to properly take your uh, look at and sink your teeth in and ultimately so is the motivation of the colonel in the film it's complicated you're like why is he doing this i get it but it's very difficult to put into words do you know what i mean yeah i was so what is your take on why does colonel nicholson decide to collaborate because there's a few different things at play but what, what do you settle on I think I think it's like he says. I think he's like, look, we're British. We're just here. We want to do a good job, no matter the circumstances. And then in the end, where he tries to stop them uh, destroying the bridge, that's the whole, that's the odd madness, difficult to explain part that I think is an examination of empire as a concept. He has that conversation on the bridge or Saito as well, where he's talking the about legacy. He's talking about legacy. Yeah, absolutely. You read that as empire rather than just like a personal legacy as a as a man, as a human being. Well, look at the man. He's the British Empire personified. I guess he's like a sort of boring middle manager. Yeah, yeah. He's like Colonel he be Blimp working or in something. an office. Yeah, somewhere. yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, and he, t- yeah, he's like basically he's he spent the like he spent. 10 months at home, always around the world in the last 20 years or whatever, you know. Yeah, do, yeah. Which, but That's like, like the thing is, like the, the British Empire at its height, I mean, it was literally true. The sun did not set on it. They had places mm-hmm. everywhere. This is the thing as well that, I mean, a lot of people will scoff at this, but no matter what, the first point everybody, everyone should make to themselves when I'm uh, thinking about the British Empire and colonialism is they did think they were doing a good thing. No matter what your opinion of it is, they did think that, and that's a, a lot of people don't want to swallow that pill. But ultimately, if you want to examine it honestly, that's the first thing that you have to kind of acknowledge. And that's when, and once you acknowledge that, I suppose it gets slightly less complex because it still is quite complex. Because you know, the ultimate thing is they didn't give people a choice about what the, about the good intentions they wanted to put on them. That's the ultimate thing that you'll rub up against. Which I suppose then that's present in the film. You know what I mean? Like, they're not given a choice in a way. You know what I mean? They're not like... I, Who's I not know. given a choice? Like, he doesn't have a choice. About, he's who he is. He's this. He's a British right. guy. He's a British army officer. It's like, you tell him to build a bridge. He's following orders. He's going to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But Saito's, I mean, Saito's just following orders. Yeah, yeah, no, he is. But like, ultimately, like, and I think what they're going at with Saito is the fact that, like, he's... He's a different kind of imperialist. He's authoritarian. He's a dictator. He doesn't really have the respect of his men like the colonel does. And ultimately, mm. like, there's those scenes, that, like, he cries because the British are so much fucking better than him and, and, and all of that <laughs> shit. Why are they so much better than me? <laughs> uh, why is their bridge so good? My, my, <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, I'm not saying I'm, like, I'm, I'm all in with it. I just think, ultimately, that's what the film is examining. I think, and I think the presence of the of William Holden's character adds to that in this interesting way because, of course, like he is basically just he's a bag of sperm walking around. He's just all swagger, you know, which is how the Brits would have seen Americans and vice versa. You know, the Brits are all stuffy and stuff, but like in the film, then in the end, the like reckless action that like you know like the 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 cowboy stuff. It's it has to be William Holden who gets it done in the end. Shall I, uh, shall I go through the plot? Do, yeah, yeah. In early 1943, a contingent of British prisoners of war led by Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson arrive at a Japanese prison camp in Thailand. U.S. Navy Commander Shears tells of the horrific conditions 
technical sim forbids any escape attempts because they were ordered by headquarters to surrender, and escapes could be seen as defiance of orders. Also, the dense surrounding jungle renders escape virtually impossible. Colonel Saito, the camp commandant, informs the new prisoners they will all work, even officers, on the construction of a railway bridge over the River Kwai that will connect Bangkok and Rangoon. Nicholson objects, informing Saito the Geneva Convention exempts officers from manual labor. They weren't signed up to the Geneva Convention until like 1950-something. Who weren't? The Japanese. Oh, right. Well, then... Yeah, he's like, he's waving in the most, like, annoying kind of like, ah, correction, I think you'll find. Yeah. Uh, he's waving it in the Japanese face. I just, it reminds me of that old um, Stanhope bit about like, like rules of war. Why do you have rules of war? This is the it's a, it's a fucking war. Fight it or get out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. F word. I it's get like, what you I, mean. You, I'm going to come at you. I'm going to scratch your face. Like as much as I love all this, the the stiff upper lip st- stuff, I think it would have been very satisfying if Saito had just gunned down Alec Guinness right at that moment. <laughs> Just yeah. pissed it like it's a far shorter film. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean that like you know that's the spaghetti western angle, that, and th- that's entertaining too. You know what I mean? This guy's like the Geneva Convention, bang! That would have been cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what would happen now because that's far more realistic. Yeah. So if the film was made today, it would be people being waterboarded, a la the railway man, and yeah, this character would just get would get fucking bayoneted. Yeah, yeah, but this isn't reality. This is a David Lean film. This is. More like Porridge than uh, Starred Up or Oz. Yeah, it's a fun time. We'll get to the fun bits in a second. After the enlisted men are marched to the bridge site, Saito threatens to have the officers shot until Major Clipton, the British medical officer, warns Saito there are too many witnesses for him to get away with murder. Saito leaves the officers standing all day in the intense heat. That evening, the officers are placed in a punishment hut while Nicholson is beaten and locked in an iron box. That's like the first 40 or so minutes of the film's quite... I mean, that's as close as they get to the the levels of torture that from the uh, railway man, but apparently still fairly tame compared to what was actually happening in these camps. Yeah, and it's more like Cool Hand Luke or something, I suppose. It's like... Uh, but it's, it's very entertaining. Alec Guinness is great. The the Colonel Bogey song is is fun. I like it. You're never really worried about them. No, you're never worried about these officers of any of anything bad happening to them. No, like you know, like I, to be honest, I had forgotten ex- how it ends exactly, and it was su- mm-hmm. surprising to me that so many people die. Yeah, it's quite a shocking ending, especially for the time. Shears and two others escape. Only he survives, though he's wounded. He wanders into a Burmese village, is nursed back to health, and eventually reaches the British colony of Ceylon. You know he probably sexualizes some of those Burmese ladies as well. They loved him. Everyone loved him. Everyone loves Holden. They They were like, thank you very much for having sex with my daughters. Mr. William Holden. Yeah, he's got it. Everyone loved him in that village. Yeah, yeah. He, like he doesn't have the daring do of uh, of a British hero. He's like a yeah, more reluctant. Yeah, this is one of those films of the time period. It's like that old Eddie Izzard bit where he's talking about the British films and American films. Yeah, yeah. He's talking about just how like the Great Escape. He's saying like um you know like all the British characters are like dum 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 and then you've got Steve McQueen on his motorbike like dun, 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 dun. like he's <laughs> you know they're so cool William Holden is so cool and all the Brits are just slightly pathetic office managers yeah but they're fair, fair play they won the war I like the commandos more yeah 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 they're a bit more real do you notice when um there there's a part in the film where they um they they meet Japanese officers and they have to gun them down in the jungle this is when they're going back and uh, it sh- it cuts to birds flying when the the officers are shot 
in a very, yeah, in a very I like that. Terrence Malicky kind of way. I thought that was... I like that. I like that because it showed, like, they didn't show the violence. Mm. This film was rated U. Huh. Yeah, that makes sense. They didn't show any violence, but they showed the aftermath of it. It's like the kind of Reservoir Dogs cut away from the chopping off of the ear. Yes. You don't need to see the violence, but they show you the aftermath and they you see the birds flying away, like you said, very malachy. But I like that. That was very solid. Work on the bridge proceeds badly due to both the faulty Japanese engineering plans and the prisoners' slow pace and deliberate sabotage. Japanese viewers of the film at the time were unhappy with the way that engineer, <laughs> Japanese engineering was was portrayed. They 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 didn't care so much about the fact that like all the brutal shit that happened was sort of glossed over. They were more unhappy about like they said we can't build bridges, the bastards. It's funny as well because the the Japanese are famously good engineers. Wow. Not in this film. Saito is expected to commit ritual suicide if he fails to meet the rapidly approaching deadline. Desperate, he uses the anniversary of Japan's 1905 victory in the Russo-Japanese War as an excuse to save face. He announces a general amnesty, releasing Nicholson and his officers and exempting them from manual labor. Noise. Nicholson is shocked by the poor job being done by his men and orders the building of a proper bridge, proper British-like. <laughs> intending it to stand as a tribute to the British Army's ingenuity for centuries to come. Clipton objects, believing this to be collaboration with the enemy. Nicholson's obsession with the bridge eventually drives him to order his officers to engage in manual labor. Uh, the real story, Lieutenant Colonel Philip Tusi, apparently they did things like they would collect termites to infest the wood. Huh. They would, you know, not basically not put things together properly to ensure that it would fall to pieces. Although the actual bridges that they built were blown up by Allied bombings. And then the steel bridge, because there were two bridges, ultimately, the, the steel bridge that they built, which was blown up, was rebuilt and is the bridge that Colin Firth is standing on at the end of the railway man. Yeah, that's good knowledge. Yeah, there you go. Shears is enjoying his hospital stay in Ceylon, unwittingly within a commando school referred to as Force 316. Yeah, it's all very likely James Bond, the real that world. It says, likely based on the real world Force 136 of the Special Operations Executive. You always have to be a little concerned with like war films. There's people going into the Wikipedia plot synopses going like, this gun is famously <laughs> the 422 Special. Take a man's head right off. Major Warden of SOE invites Shears to join a commando mission to destroy the bridge just as it is completed. Shears tries to get out of the mission by confessing that he impersonated an officer hoping for better treatment from the Japanese. I, I like all that stuff of Shears is doing a whole kind of like, you know, war is madness, catch 22. Yeah. I don't want to fucking go back. I lied to get out. But they already know. Warden responds that he already knew and that the U.S. Navy had agreed to transfer him to the British SOE with the simulated rank of major to avoid embarrassment. Realizing he has no choice, Shears volunteers. Warden Shears and two other commandos parachute into Thailand. One Chapman dies after falling into a tree and Warden is wounded in an encounter with a Japanese patrol and must be carried on a litter. Yes, that's a stretcher. This is the march uh, through the jungle. I thought that was uh, shot just, I thought that was beautiful footage. Reminded me of uh, Apocalypse Now when they go in and find mm. the tiger in the jungle. I thought it was just shot yeah. and lit very, very nicely. I guess uh, like Chapman's death must have been quite shocking at the time because he's one of the four commandos in the group, but he's the one that Shears describes as being like having ice in his veins. He's like the killer that you want there. He seems like the most qualified for the job, but he ends up going slam in the tree. Yeah. And he's done. He's done so. This is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was cool. 
to be honest. I thought the parachute sequence was cool as well. Anyway. Warden, Shears, and Joyce reach the river in time with the assistance of Siamese women bearers and their village chief, Kunyai. I think, like, all of that stuff with the Siamese women, it's so it, it's so interesting just to see that, of, like, they're engaged in warfare. They realize they could possibly die at any minute, but they have all these, like, sort of, like, loving, intimate moments with these Siamese women. Yeah. Uh, like, who it, love them. It's a, it's a odd, it's a bizarre, uh, but welcome addition yeah. to the wolf pack. I think they, I think they want just wanted some ladies in the film. Yeah, maybe. yeah. Like, it looks like it would make it would make way more sense if it was men who were going along with them. I think. And you know as well, like I mean, jungle ladies in Burma were probably hags. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm sure they were. I mean, I yeah. But anyway, I'm not going to make that type of claim. I don't know. I've never been. Nor I've I. I've never been to Siam. I've never been to Ceylon or Siam, as I still call them. That's good. I've uh, never been to Rhodesia personally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Under cover of darkness, Shears and Joyce plant explosives on the bridge towers. It says under cover of darkness. One thing I noticed on the 4K is that that was definitely shot during the daytime. Day for night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yeah, much. Day for night. Day for night all the way. Yeah. So they plant explosives on the bridge towers. A train carrying important dignitaries and soldiers is scheduled to be the first to cross the bridge the following day. And Warden wants to destroy both. By daybreak, however, the river, the river level is dropped. There's always there's always another thing you need to be thinking about. Yes, indeed. As, uh, as Warden says, there's always another thing. The river level is dropped, which I thought was nice, exposing the wire connecting the explosives to the detonator. And then you hear the train whistle, and everything from the first time you hear the train whistle till the end of the movie is just a oh, it's electric. Tense. It's fantastic tense as hell. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Nicholson spots the wire and brings it to Saito's attention. What a dickhead! As the train what approaches, a dickhead. The at that point, down. you're like, oh, you no, moron, like, yeah, fucking idiot. As the train approaches, they hurry down to the riverbank to investigate. Joyce, manning the detonator, breaks cover and stabs Saito to death. So, yeah, it was Joyce getting his first kill because he'd been wondering whether he could do it or not. But he did it. Yes. He manned up and did it. Stabbed a guy. Nicholson, Nicholson yells for help while attempting to stop Joyce from reaching the detonator. When Joyce is wounded by Japanese fire, Shears swims across by himself. Shot. Recognizing Shears, Nicholson exclaims, What have I what done? What have I done? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the ending to Pierre Bull's novel ha- doesn't have Nicholson making that realization and then falling on the detonator. Nicholson doesn't. Nicholson doesn't change his point of view. He's still like he still believes. He's still trying to protect the bridge. Yeah, it just seems like what they had to have in the movie, basically. Yeah, it's nineteen fifty-seven. Yeah, yeah. Can't have Alec Guinness going like, "Yeah, fuck you, Britain." You can't have complicated European endings no. for a Hollywood yeah. movie. No way. What is this? Wages of fear. Warded fires a mortar, killing Shears and Joyce and fatally wounding Nicholson. Dying, Nicholson stumbles toward the detonator and falls on the plunger, blowing up the bridge and sending the train hurtling into the river. Warden tells the Siamese woman that he had to prevent anyone from falling into enemy hands and leaves with them. Because he, he was firing his mortar like directly at them. Mm. So like there was no chance of Joyce or Shears being saved because they got mortared to death. And he apologizes to the to the Siamese ladies. He does. He's like, that was that was a bad. That was a poor show for the British Empire. Yeah, sure. Sorry. Uh, yeah, fair play. Poor show. Sorry. Yeah. Witnessing the carnage, Clifton shakes his head and mutters, "Madness, madness, the horror, the horror." And do you know unofficial sequel to this? That character's name again? What's he called? Uh, the the guy who fired the mortar. Warden. Warden. Yeah, that's right. Unofficial sequel to this, actually. Schindler's um, List. No, no, no. Later in life, he went and settled down in a hotel in Torquay. Yes, The Bridge in the River Kwai <laughs> is actually the origin story to the major from, from Faulty Towers. Yes. Respect. Is that true? No. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> 
I spoke convincingly, though. Fair play. Yeah, I, I <laughs> it you sold it. He sold, he sold it to me. Yeah, the major. Such a funny character. Some, yes, please. Do you hear about some of these people? Yes. So you got William Holden as Commander Shears, the U.S. Navy. Mm-hmm. He served. Uh, he served in the Air Force in World War II. His brother Bobby was killed in action in the Pacific. Oh no! I know. Hard times. There's a lot of World War II veterans in this cast. Unsurprisingly. Holden was best man at the wedding of his friend Ronald Reagan to actress Nancy Davis in 1952. Jesus, I didn't know that. Yeah, him and old uh, old uh, Ronald Reagan, best best buds. Unfortunately, William Holden did a Bob Saget in 1981. He was intoxicated, hit his head off of a bedside table, and he bled out. Oh, wow. Holden does look like the type, though, particularly later in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, between... So we watched The Wild Bunch not that long ago. That's 1969. In the 12 years between Bridge on the River Kwai and uh, The Wild Bunch, he I ages think William a lot. Holden, he aged about 30 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aged a lot. He went from like... He, I mean, it was like 40 to like early 50s. In Kwai, he's I'm, reaching the end of Handsome. Me. Uh, I'm starting to worry as a 41-year-old dude, man because c- when I see the difference between 40s and 50s, it's scary. That's true, but also, I mean, compared... They were, they were, they were living. They were living. Yeah, they were living. Like, <laughs> they were living. Like, the guy do you know, died hitting his head, so yeah. Do you know the most recent appearance of William Holden in a movie? Mm, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. No, he is as played by Sean Penn in Licorice Pizza. Oh. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. That's Will, that's William him. Holden, yeah. Oh yeah. Rides a motorbike oh, right. drunk. Yeah, yeah. He was fun. He was great. He fun was, yeah, yeah. On the golf course, yeah, so yeah. It was a fun part. It was. Holden's uh, Holden's death was referenced in the lyrics of Suzanne Vega's Tom's Diner. Don't know that song. <laughs> yeah, you do. Oh right. Yeah, I do. She's like this. She's like a, some guy died hitting his head because he was drunk. Nice. Could easily be talking about um about Bob Saget. She should. Uh, she should yeah, update that. Yeah, re-record the song and be specific. Yeah, William Holden, uh, two Oscar nominations, one win. No idea. Care to guess? Uh, no. Sunset Boulevard nomination, Network nomination, Stalag Seventeen was the win. Stalag Seventeen, directed by Billy Wilder, right? I believe so. It's uh, a comedy, which concerns me. That's paying me off. I don't want to watch a comedy from 1952, particularly. Not edgy enough. No, I know I I only watch Hangovers or <laughs> Dude Where's My Car. Dude, what's mine say? Exactly. If someone doesn't say Sweet Dude, I'm not watching that comedy. Yeah, comedy genius. Um, Another uh, speaking of sweet dudes, Jack Hawkins as Major Warden from Force Three One Six, a three pack a day smoker. In nineteen Christ. in December nineteen sixty five, Hawkins was diagnosed with throat cancer. His entire larynx was removed in January 1966. So no more, uh, no more karaoke. No. After that, all of his film performances were dubbed with Hawkins' approval. Be bad if they didn't get his approval. He he continued to get work. Yep. Without being uh, able to just, talk. He got dubbed in. He got dubbed in by two actors, Robert Rietti and Charles Gray. That's incredible. Hawkins continued to smoke after losing his voice. Oh, my God. And Real George private, Best of cigarettes. It's not even fun. <laughs> as he referred to himself as the George Best of cigarettes. <laughs> in private, he used a mechanical larynx to aid his speech. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, particularly as I'm coughing right now, but... <laughs> yeah, that, 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 was, oh, that's how I call you, Donica Mechanical Larynx. It's funny to me that <laughs> I don't know at home arguing with his wife. 
let me put my larynx in. <laughs> well, he actually died as a result of a hemorrhage because of um, uh, experimental voice box treatment that he received in 1973. <laughs> he bled out. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't think this was all going to be throat related with Jack Hawkins, but he was big in the throat game. You're kind of coming over all Jack Hawkins yourself. Ah, that's I don't know why that made me laugh. Uh, yeah, it's bad. I, I, I think it was because I wanted to be Jack solemn. Hawkins. I wanted to go. Oh well, God rest. But then I was just yeah. I think the laugh. Just well, carried he over. I, he kind of brought it on himself. Oh, I'm totally, going to yeah, say yeah. here a little bit. Much like George Best, who received half yeah, of yeah. Uh, his son's liver and continued to drink. Sound dad. Yeah, but hey, there is no Jack Hawkins International Airport, as far as I know, and that's a disgrace. Indeed. You put it in Siam. Yeah, that'd be a good place to put it, or, or indeed Rhodesia. Rhodesia, indeed. So Jack Hawkins, also between 1932 and 1940, was married to Jessica Tandy. You know who that is? No. That's Daisy off of Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite, he married her, he was married to her between 1932 and 1940, but in my nice. mind, she's an old lady yeah. being driven around by Morgan Freeman. Indeed, yeah. And I would not, I would not would tolerate that of my wife, to be honest. Yeah. She still looked the same, I think. Particularly with that stuff that Morgan Freeman did uh, with his uh, step-grandchild or something. He was Randy for Tandy. That's right. Alec Guinness, genuine class. Indeed, yeah. It's an anagram from The Simpsons. As Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson, the British commander, he was one of the greatest British actors who, along with Lawrence Olivier and John Gielgud, made the transition from theatre to films after the Second World War. Guinness served in the Royal Naval Reserve during the war and commanded a landing craft during the invasion of Sicily and Elba. That's pretty ballin'. Yeah, he did some stuff. Guinness never knew his father. From 1875, under English law, when the birth of an illegitimate child was registered, the father's name could be could only be entered on the certificate if he were present and gave his consent. That's, that's, a, a, nice, that's a pretty uh, sweet law. Good system. Yeah. Eh? It's a nice system. Yeah, but he believed uh, during his life that Scottish banker Andrew Geddes was his father. I believe he paid for uh, Alec Guinness's education. Yeah, fair enough. Right, getting to the gay stuff. So, in his biography, Alec Guinness, the unknown Gary O'Connor, reports that Guinness was arrested and fined 10 guineas for a homosexual act in a public lavatory in Liverpool in 1946. Guinness is said to have avoided publicity by giving his name to police in court as Herbert Pocket. <laughs> 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 and i like to I, come on we've all we've all been there the number of times i've given my name to to officials is herbert pocket which is of course the name that the character of the character that alec guinness played in uh, great expectations sweet however i'm sorry to tell you no record of any arrest has ever been found peers paul reed in his 2005 biography suggests the rumor is possibly a conflation of stories about alex's uh, alex cottaging and the arrest of John Gielgud in October 1953 in a public laboratory in Chelsea after dining with the Guinnesses at his St. Peter's Square address. I'm very surprised and disgusted to learn all of this about Alec Guinness. I thought he was my man. This suggestion was not made until April 2001, eight months after his death, when a BBC Showbiz article related that new books claimed that Guinness was bisexual and they had kept his sexuality private from the public eye and that the biography further said only his closest friends and family members knew that he had sexual relationships with men. Alec Guinness Academy Award nominations. Care to take a guess? Uh, he got nominated for this, didn't he? Yeah, he won. He won. Okay. Um, no, I don't The know. others are all nominations. No, don't know any off the top of my head. You must know one of them. Come on now. Obi-Wan Kenobi. 
Yeah. He got nominated for that. Best Supporting Actor. And he was famously, uh, he did not like the experience. Yeah. But they still gave him an Academy Award nomination for playing himself. Let's see. I don't know. Uh, Passport to Pimlico, maybe? No. Lavender Hill Mob. Okay. And Little Dorrit in 1987. Don't know any of that film. It's uh, Charles Dickens' adaptation. Sweet. That seems like, uh, yeah, where he belongs. He's also got a nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay for 1958's Horses, The Horse's Mouth. Wow, okay, fair play. This guy, this guy not only reads, he can write. <laughs> what about Saito? Next level. Well, just before we get to Saito, the most important bit of, uh, of uh, Alec Guinness trivia is that his great-grandson, Nesta Guinness Walker, is a professional footballer who plays for Reading. That is pretty tight. I like that. I've listened to him in interviews. He does not sound like his great-grandfather at all. Yeah, just... Uh, He's not going like, well, it was a very good game. To paraphrase... He very uh, well today. To, par- to paraphrase for who? To paraphrase uh, what somebody once said to the Dixie Chicks, perhaps he should just shut up and play. Well, he does. He does just play. He doesn't. I don't think he talks about his great-grandfather at all. Mm. Seems like a nice young man. So, yeah, finally, Seshu uh, Hayakawa, who played Colonel Saito, the Japanese commander. He was born Kintaro Hayakawa in 1886 in Chiba, Japan. From an early age, Hayakawa's family intended him to become an officer in the Imperial Japanese Navy. However, while a student at the Naval Academy in Etajima, he swam to the bottom of a lagoon. He grew up in a shellfish diving community. On a dare and ruptured his eardrum. The injury caused him to fail the Navy physical. His father felt shame and embarrassment by his son's failure, and this drove a wedge between them. The strained relationship drove the 18-year-old Hayakawa to attempt seppuku, ritual suicide. Good God. Yeah, yeah, get this. One evening, Hayakawa entered a shed on his parents' property and prepared the venue. He put his dog outside and attempted to uphold his family's samurai tradition by stabbing himself more than 30 times in the abdomen. Good God. The barking dog brought Hayakawa's parents to the scene, and his father used an axe to break down the door, saving his life. Why didn't he just smoke three packets of cigarettes a day? That's right. Well, that's a, that was the problem. If he had to, uh, his father caught him stabbing himself, and he had to, sat him down and made him stab with the whole pack himself thirty times. Yes, stab himself with the whole, stab himself with all the cutlery in the house. <laughs> After he recovered, <laughs> after he, <laughs> after he recovered, that's such a stupid joke. After he recovered from the suicide attempt, Hayakawa moved to the United States and began to study political economics at the University of Chicago Fair to play. fulfill his family's new wish that he become a banker. This is the best part. While a student, he reportedly played quarterback for the football team and was once penalized for using jujitsu to bring down an opponent. Fair play. I have a lot of respect for that. I do. But he was he was a huge silent movie star in like the 1910s and 20s. Uh, he played villains frequently, but he was considered a traitor by the Japanese because he mainly played bastards. Fair enough. Uh, it's the way Hollywood but, was back then, I suppose. Unfortunately, most of his films have been lost. Uh, you can... I watched a little bit of like a colorized version of his 1919 film, The Dragon Painter, on YouTube. And it's, it's very interesting to see, uh, to have a, a look at that. But he's also notable. He was in um, Swiss Family Robinson. I think he plays a baddie in that. That's the family that get on the island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember watching that a bit when I was a kid. And that's it. Sweet. No one else counts for anything. No, they in don't. This world. I enjoyed it. It was a good week. 
What a great film. What a just entertaining. It's a good. It, it, it's funny that it's been put into that into that war context, which, like we said, would have pissed off Eric Lomax. But watching it now, it's just it's just a really interesting, well made, tense yeah. action film. It's yeah, yeah. The, that last sequence with the action train coming epic. is just hell yeah. It's awesome. Um, great film. Looking forward to. Like I would watch. I would watch this again next week probably because it's just it passes the time just so yeah. nicely. Uh, yeah, it definitely belongs Especially on that, that 4K copy. Like Bank Holiday Sunday Afternoon, it's in that category. Yeah. Hell yeah. All right, what do we bring into the toss table? Well, I decided to choose a film from filmmaker Andrew Hay. Mm-hmm. I saw him on the Criteria, that Criteria, Criterion Closet. Oh, thing. he's on that, I'll watch that. Yeah, where you go in and you get to pick yeah, out yeah. a bunch of films I like to it. take home with you. I saw him on that and I was like, oh, yeah. Well, I saw his film 45 years Me in too. the cinema, and I was a huge fan of that. Excellent. It was excellent. Yeah, it's really great, good. Great, great, great. So I went for his 2017 follow-up, Lean on Pete. Lean on Pete. When you're not strong. Uh, okay, I clearly, I'm, I'm pushing this guy. I want to watch some of this guy's films because I've put up his other uh, classic before. I, the previous one I put up, which you're more than welcome to accompany this with if it uh, wins, uh, was um, Bob Le Flambeur. I am, of course, oh, talking yeah. about uh, Jean-Pierre Melville, and I'm putting up his uh, hitman. Apparently, this is the hitman archetype, Les Samurais. Indeed. All right. You got a I coin? a coin. Sweet. What I are do. my options? 20 or Cervantes. Give me Cervantes all day. It is Cervantes. Yes! I won one! Oh, wow. Congrats. Yeah, no, I'm happy that we're going this route as well. Okay, do you want to hear what you would have got? Please. I would have gone similarly. Now, I had a look at uh, Lean on Pete. It looks very interesting, and I do want to watch it at some point. I was going to pair it up with another uh, indie film that uh, primarily featured an uh, an animal. Uh, Kelly Reithardt's 2019 drama, First Cow. Mm. Animal double bill. That's what we would have gotten. What are we getting okay. instead? I'm giving. I'm going to give you. I've got four choices for you here. Oh wow! I'm not telling you what they are. You can have director, actor, year, or genre. Give me genre. Well, the genre I went for very loose fit. Let me tell you what you could have won. Oh <laughs> no! I tell you Did I pick the worst one? No, 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 definitely not. So director, I was going to go for Army of Shadows, the 1961, uh, 1969 film about the French the resistance, resistance, which yeah. I think I'd put up before. Actors, another one I put up before. Uh, Alain Delon was in Plein Soleil, the original um, talented Mr. Ripley adaptation. That was also there. 1967, the year was going to be Playtime. That's the Jacques Tati uh, surrealist comedy, I think. Mm-hmm. Genre, very, very loosely fitted uh, genre based on uh, what, I, what I found in film similarities. Is Jacques Audiard's a prophet? Oh, wow. This is going to be a great week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we've, uh, you know, we we did our uh, Jacques Audiard double bill uh, a while back, quite a long time ago. Listeners can't. Pan and Rust and Bone. Listeners can't see my face, but I'm like fucking <laughs> beaming right now. Oh, this is going to be awesome. So yeah, the samurai and a prophet. Uh, like French films, boring, pretentious French films. Excellent. Okay. But uh, not next week, because next week we're running a catch up on last year and a Oscar nominee, Paul Mescal, fair play to him. After Sun, right? That's what we said. That's right. After Sun. I think maybe next week we can talk a little bit about the uh, about the Oscar nominations as well. Hell yeah, let's do it. 
uh, for the moment. Now I'm going to uh, shower rapidly and run out the door. We're going to take my daughter to a playground sort of a thing. Um, no, 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 it's all good. I had a great time this episode. I always have a great time. Uh, Indeed. I love you. I love you too. Bye. 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 <laughs>